Today's edition of the DBR podcast is sponsored by the boys of Bird Campbell, your Duke-centric law firm, lawyers by vocation, but Duke grads by the grace of God. Founders and former Duke roommates Jamie Campbell and Tucker Bird say, go Duke or go home. Hello there, Duke fans, and welcome to episode number 109 of the DBR podcast, 109 of these. We are just racking them up left and right. Uh, We come to you tonight on a uh, difficult evening. The Blue Devils just lost, but before we get to the Virginia Tech game, I want to bring in my compadre, partners in crime. First of all, in Washington, D.C., Donald Wine. Hey, Jason. Uh, First off, I just want to give a quick apology to the listeners out there for not being on the last episode when uh, Jason and Sam discussed the FBI probe. Uh, I, I was on a, I was on a charity ball in Charlotte and I had three dates. And when you have three dates, you don't step out on them to record a podcast. So uh, I, you guys held your own. It was a great discussion uh, and we'll have, we'll talk about it further, but just want to give a quick apology. I was busy. Three dates. That's, that's kind of impressive, man. You know, Donald, there are are three of us. Kind there of? are three of us, you know. Well, you guys were in Charlotte, so I couldn't help you there. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> he obviously just chimed in. Uh, Sam Klein in Denver, Colorado. Sam, what's new on your end? Did you have three dates with, on, on one evening? Uh, no. No, I did not. <laughs> that's uh, What night did we, were, did we do? We did that on Friday? It was Friday night. It was, it was Friday, Friday night. night. Yeah. yeah, Friday. Let's see. I think I, I got takeout with some friends, and then I went to bed. So... And, and and you and you talked about the FBI scandal, which, as Donald said, we will get to in more detail. There's been a lot that's happened since we talked about it on Friday. It is a it is the dominant story in all of college basketball right now. But before we get to that, there's action on the court that we must talk about. Uh, gentlemen, it's a it's a very surprising result tonight from uh, from Virginia Tech, where the Blue Devils went down 64 to 63 as uh, Virginia Tech's Chris Clark tipped in a. Uh, a, a uh, rebound basket, very, very into the game with about four seconds left. Grayson Allen rushes up court, takes a long jumper, um, which he misses. And uh, Wendell Carter tips in, which would have been the winning points, but it comes just a uh, fraction of a second too late. And so the Blue Devils go down 64 to 63, dropping the record in the ACC to 12 and 5, dropping us pretty much into a tie for second place with North Carolina. We will talk more about North Carolina in a moment. But Donald, I'm going to go to you first. Uh, give me your impressions from this game. And all right, I'm going to just ask the question. I told you guys, I was going to ask this question. I'm going to lead the coverage by asking this question because it's what everyone wants to know. Is Duke better without Marvin Bagley? The answer is no, we are not better without Marvin Bagley, but we play worse with him on the court. The reason why is because, and and you can see it a lot in this game, you have it where we start the ball on the perimeter and the idea is to get the ball inside to Bagley primarily or even Wendell Carter. In the first half, that was working. Uh, And and it was able, you know, he was able to get in, get the ball, go up for a shot or kick it out to somebody for, for a jumper. That was working very well in the first, like, I'd say 13 minutes of the game. Then we had a point where we just couldn't hit anything. And what Virginia Tech did in the second half is they decided to pack the paint. They put four guys in the paint when we had two, and 
literally dared us to shoot threes. And we were still trying to get the ball into Bagley because we were the, the guys out there kind of defer to him. And that's not his fault. What I think we need to do is, is this team needs to figure out how to play balanced basketball with him on the court. It, it's not where one of the things we, we've seen in the, the previous five games or previous four games where Grayson Allen had really good games. It was because he was the focal point of the offense. He was finding his shot. He was proactive about being aggressive on the offensive end. And today he wasn't because he was trying to find a way to get the ball to Bagley. Everyone on the floor tries to do that. Now that's because Bagley is the best player in the ACC, but that doesn't mean that we have to play where every single possession, he hits a touch every single possession. He has to take a shot. We have to play more balanced on offense and on defense. We, you know, on defense, I thought we were doing fine, but really what has happened in the last four games is that our defense has spurred our transition, which has spurred our offense. And we weren't getting the sparks on defense to spur the offense. And on offense, we were so frustrated. We turned the ball over quite a bit. We just didn't get that momentum. We didn't get that spark. And we didn't get that that juice that we've been feeding off of so much in the last couple of weeks. So I think that's the real issue. Yes, we're a better team with him on the court. But well, we don't so, play better. But we don't play better with him. So and I think that's the key. I, 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 think, I think that what you're getting at is that he uh, Duke probably just needs more time for him to reintegrate on both ends of the court. Um, he obviously is a much stronger offensive player than defensive player. I think that he is still working on his role in that zone defense, playing one of those one of those forward spots that I think a lot of the other guys on the team have have gotten better at faster than Bagley has. And obviously, he missed the the major chunk of when Duke was really using that that defense. You know, the majority of the time now it's their full time defense. Um, so he's still learning that he doesn't, he had a couple times in this game against Virginia tech where he recovered poorly um, to the corner or, or wasn't available on the help side to contest um, shots down low. So I think that he can improve that. I think that those are fairly simple uh, things for the coaches to point out on film and for him to kind of get used to. There aren't, you know, the, the nice thing about the zone defense is that there aren't that many concepts to it. It's not like, Duke's traditional switching man-to-man, you know, aggressive defense that I think is very hard to pick up. Once you do it, it's it's really it's really good, but you need kind of a veteran team for it, which is why obviously they're playing the zone now. I think the more challenging thing and the more surprising thing to me is that on offense he's not there yet. Um and the the concerning part of it is that um there aren't that many games left that quote don't count right the, the game against unc counts but but in all likelihood duke is um still going to be a, a top four seed in the acc tournament which is what they really want um that's more important than like your seeding within the tournament and then looking at the ncaa tournament duke is probably still like a two seed at worst um maybe has an outside shot at a one seed but um there aren't that many games left that quote don't count for Bagley to get reintegrated into the offense. And it, and it it is really strange how it stalled so suddenly when he came back and it doesn't feel like all the things that he does well have elevated the team in light of the rest of the team playing well on offense in his absence. So, gentlemen, 
I, I want to go specifically and talk about the defense for a second because Dan Dakich was absolutely ripping Marvin Bagley, oh. especially. Are, are we? Wait, are we wait, time real, out, time out, time out, time out. Time you out. are not allowed. You are not allowed to bring Dan Dockage into this and say that his is the thing that we have to count on. No, but time out, time out. We're we're not talking about Dan Dockage. We're just not. Let's just let's just. I, I, no, I don't so, I don't care. I, I we, he may have had some in, in, insightful stuff to talk about, but we're not talking about him. I'm pissed off at him right now. Move on. <laughs> All right. All right. Bless me. He, Listen, he, Donald he, and I Donald and I have both expressed opinions about Dan Dockage previously on this show. And I don't know how it is that you don't dislike him to the degree that we that we do, but I don't know. Go ahead. Say your piece. We spent five minutes talking about Coach K called a timeout because he wanted to talk to the refs about a, a, a non call, and he spent five minutes ripping Coach, ripping the officials for letting him talk to them. That's we their job. We, the, the problem, That's Donald job, and, and Jason, we're getting totally off topic, but it's important. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, the problem is we can't, worked up over Dan Dockage. We can't, we can't win here because the color guy is either going to be Dan Dockage, who we know is a total boob, or it's Dick Vitale, who's like completely senile at this point, or it's Jay Billis, who like has to talk about the NCAA the entire game and like we'll talk about Marvin Bagley's second jump for like two minutes and then just go back to, to ripping on amateurism. So I, I don't know why we we can't get like, you know, just good color commentators on the games to like talk about skill about basketball skills for forty minutes. But regardless, Jason, did you have a thought about Marvin Bagley? Uh, so Dan Dockich said, and I don't like Dan Dockich. I'm not a fan. I, I I was the guy who ripped him earlier this year for the absurd thing where he picked Ohio State to make the Final Four, and I laughed at him, and it was all because although. His- Although, Although they're really good. They're way better good. than we thought. I know. <laughs> so it, it, at the time it looked absurd and it was crazy. And he, you know, so, so folks will remember I ripped Dan Dockage, but Dan Dockage was pretty darn strong about Marvin Bagley. He said he doesn't play defense. Once the ball goes into him, it doesn't come out. He said he's selfish. And he then said these words. He said, you can see how they went on a run after he got hurt. And that's, I mean, those are some damning comments by him that went out to the entire college basketball world. And Donald, I think you summed it up pretty well. Like you said, this Duke team, as great as Marvin Bagley is, I think maybe they haven't figured out exactly how to play with Bagley. And the thing that I noticed in this game was our ball movement. Um, When we kept the ball moving around on the outside, good things tend to happen. When we, put it back inside when we got it in to the post, which is usually where good things happen. And I mean, goodness, against Syracuse, and we're going to talk about the Syracuse game in a minute. Against Syracuse, the entire game was won because Duke got the ball in the post and the ball movement was fabulous in the post, big-to-big passing and that kind of stuff. And we it was a dunk fest. In this game, we got the ball inside and it was like everyone decided, all right, now that I've gotten it, I am going to shoot. And uh, except for Marquise Bolden, Bolden did a nice job passing. He had four. Marquise Bolden had four assists, which is a big number for him, considering he doesn't play a lot and he doesn't get the ball. You know, we don't pound it into him the same way. But guys, I was I was mystified by our ball movement in this game. I really thought that once the ball would go inside, we would stagnate and we didn't get good possessions on offense as a result. And and then the other thing that killed us in this game was turnovers. We had 18 turnovers. And in the final two minutes, other than Grayson's desperation heave, in you know, with one second left, we didn't take a shot at the basket 
because we had three consecutive turnovers in the final two minutes. I mean, or, this or as Buzz Williams would call it a turkey, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Three stops. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, Duke is up by five with the ball and one and a half minutes left. That's like an automatic. It never even occurred to me we would lose this game. I was utterly shocked that we lost a game. We're leading by five with the ball in our hands and a minute and a half left. But we turned the ball over th- three straight times. Um, and and Grayson Allen was mostly the guy who was doing the turnovers. Uh, and so, all right. So I want to take you guys. I want to ask you one other question. What do you think? Was it intentional by Coach K to get the ball to Trevon Duval? In an automatic foul situation, there's 25 seconds left. There's I no think question. That was, that, that, that was, I think that was maybe the worst coaching aspect of this game was the fact that Duval was on the court in a position to be receiving the ball there where we knew oh, oh, wait. That, that he was getting it fouled. It's even worse than that. It's not that he was in the game. And, and I would argue that, that Alex O'Connell should have been in the game or, or Jordan Goldwire should have been in the if game. Only, if only for that. If only for, for the shooting. You, you know we're going to get fouled, so you can bring Duvall in in a second. It's not even the fact that Duvall was in the game. A 60% free throw shooter was in the game. A guy who's missed clutch free throws late in games throughout the season. I mean, he's done this over and over again. It's not even that. It looked like we ran a play to get him the ball. It looked like our plan was to get the ball to Trevon Duvall with 25 the- seconds left in a one-point it, it's uh, it, It's inexplicable. There is there is a, a sort of weird thread that's been going on this whole season. And we've talked about how, you know, we all know Duval's not a great shooter. He's not a good free throw shooter. He's not, a, he's certainly not a good three point shooter. And there was, there was a period where we thought it was going to improve like early in ACC play. And it, it, he hasn't been able to sustain that. He's still shooting like in the twenties for, for his three point percentage for the season. Although he did hit the first three for, for the team against Syracuse. Um, but for some reason, the coaches let him keep shooting. And uh, again, this is kind of like uh, the team has to get better. So this is how it's going to happen. I wonder if we've, if like this, this we've got to be at the end of the rope for, for Duval being allowed to take three or four three pointers a game and being in a position like you just described, where he's on the court and receiving the ball in a situation where the opponent is definitely going to foul in a one and one situation, which is like the worst because then you're giving up, you know, like he misses the first one. He doesn't even get a second one. Uh, it's, and like it a it's, and, and, it's like a turn. It's like a turn. It's an automatic turnover. Yeah. So um, I, I, I would be more sympathetic to it maybe a month ago. If the idea is, listen, we got to keep, we got to keep feeding him. He's got to, he's got to get better because um, the, the team ceiling is raised if he's a better shooter. I think we're out of time for that. I don't think that there's that, that there's you know enough games left in the season. Um, there are Duke is only guaranteed to have three more games this season. Um, I think they'll have more than that, but they only they only necessarily have three games left, and they 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 can't be trusting key offensive situations to do Val shooting. I I think that's incredible. You're right, and I fully agree. And. It's it's absolutely mystifying to me, and I like the kid. I want him to succeed, but goodness, yeah, he's, he 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 tries really hard, and 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 he has not appeared to take the de- sort of demotion that he's gotten that poorly. Right, he's still trying really hard on defense. Um, when he gets the ball on offense, I think sometimes it works really well for him, but other times it's like, why is he taking these shots? He's still missing a lot of them. And on top of that, I did want to add, kind of before we moved on from Virginia Tech. 
that um, you mentioned, Jason, the turnovers. The other problem tonight was that Duke was uh, that Duke's two main three point shooters, Grayson Allen and Gary Trent, were five for eighteen from three. No, no, and, no, 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 no. They 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 were five for twenty two. Oh, I did the math wrong. They were five for twenty two, so it's even worse. Um, they were below twenty yeah. percent for the game, um, and uh, and that's just like in a in a game like this that's that's really physical and not very fast. Um, Duke missing twenty or you know seventeen three pointers by the only two guys that reliably shoot them um, is just not a recipe for success. So maybe if Duke even shoots like in the twenties for three point percentage, they win this game by like one or two possessions, and we're like, hey, Duke got a win on the road. Um, so there are, you know, the, the, these margins are, are very slim. Um, it, and, and we could be having a totally different discussion tonight if that was the case. But um, well, and, I, I and, think that was the other key in addition to the turnovers. Yeah. And, and what's more, I mean, I felt like Allen and especially Trent missed some threes that were really wide. There were a couple they took where I was like, they, they, they had more time. They almost had too much time. They had more time than you ever see on, on a three-pointer. And and they missed them. It was it was really inexplicable, um, and 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 just uh, overall a, a frustrating game because it's one that you really it was it was weird. Duke was in control like the whole game, and and we'd start to stretch. You know, we stretched out to fifteen early, then we kept on stretching the lead out to seven and nine points and that kind of thing. And and then Virginia Tech would reel us back in, um, and we could never get you know a a big possession or two uh, where we would stretch it even more. Um, and and then at the very end, it just it just fell apart. It's it, it's crazy, um, but that's enough about this Virginia Tech game. I want to reflect back on better games, games that we enjoyed a little bit more earlier in the week, uh, or technically, I guess, week. Duke played uh, two home games. Uh, they played the Louisville Cardinals, and they uh, won eighty-two to fifty-six. They absolutely destroyed Louisville and then they played the Syracuse Orangemen and the Blue Devils won 60 to 44 that was a game that was considerably closer Duke pulled away late although it was uh, again a game that felt like Duke was in control virtually the entire game um uh, Sam I'll I'll go to you first why, why don't we start with the Louisville game you know give me a little bit of your your thoughts and impressions of uh, of that contest um uh, you know the absolute defensive strangle that Duke put on the Louisville Cardinals yeah, I think that the the defense is the key here, and um, the the zone really frustrated Louisville. I don't think that they ever got into a, an offensive rhythm. Um, we talked a little bit about how awesome their big men are coming into this game, and Ray Spalding had a pretty nice game for them. But otherwise, it was uh, it was a pretty dominating performance for Duke's defense. And we saw um, we saw Javin Delorier play. He, he played almost twenty minutes in this game. Um, was really effective, and then Marquise Bolden. Um, we talked about both of them in the, you know, in regards to the Virginia Tech game. I think those two guys are, you know, have, have come on really strong in this was obviously the last game without Bagley, but um, but they seem to hold their own. I, they're, they're both very willing and able defenders in the in those wing positions on the in the zone and Bolden can also play center. Um, so I think that that was the that was the key against Louisville that that they didn't know how to break it down. And I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, um, about how, when you, you know, when it comes to breaking down the zone defense, one of the ways you do it and the Duke did pretty well against Syracuse was, um, getting it through the, through the foul line and then, and then down low, there's kind of like three layers to, to, to bust through Louisville. Couldn't do that against Duke. Um, and so that, that was the best thing. The other, um, 
the other kind of thing that I wanted to mention about Louisville is that Grayson Allen played uh, pretty well in that game. Um, uh, shot 10 for 20 from the field, which was really nice, and uh, ultimately ended up with 28 points. He was really aggressive, and uh, I I think that that was one of his better games. So, uh, and, and you know, kind of in a stretch of games that he's had that were really strong while Bagley's been out. So, um, yeah, I, I, the Louisville game was 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 dominant. Probably Duke's one of Duke's best. Um, overall performances in in the last couple months, and that's saying something since they had a lot of good wins leading up to it. Yeah, I, I thought to some extent the story of the game was that we just seemed quicker, we seemed more intense, um, uh, we we wanted it more than Louisville did. Um, uh, our defense got a lot of steals, uh, got a lot of blocks, and also forced them into a lot of bad shots. We were using our length and our quickness. All over the floor, we were doing a great job of anticipating where the ball was going to be, and and as a result, Louisville like didn't have an answer. They couldn't figure out what they wanted to do. And, and I'm hey, glad- from a from a from a motivation perspective, I was um, proud that that Duke kind of. I mean, it, it was it was a little back and forth at the beginning. They they Duke was leading, but not by much. Um, but this was a game that Louisville had every right to be emotional about because the news that their 2013 championship banner was coming down um, came out earlier in the day. And we did not let that affect anything. We just, we took it right to him and like won by 30 points and it wasn't ever really close. Uh, yeah. And one stat I wanted to point out that to me was very telling in terms of effort. Um, Bolden, Delorier, and Jack White played a total of 50 minutes. 50 minutes was just a little more than, you know, what, you know, what would be a game, 40 minutes in a game. They collected 18 rebounds in 50 minutes, those three guys combined. Um, so, I, I, you know, absolutely dominant effort uh, by, by the Duke big men and, and by the um, uh, and also by the, uh, uh, the Duke bench that, that did a fabulous job in that game. Donald, before we get done with Louisville, I want to go to you because you were at that game. So give me give me a little bit on it. Well, it was, a, as you guys mentioned, it was a really fun game to watch in person. Uh, it was great to, you know, that was the first time I had seen, uh, you know, a good chance to see the new and improved defense in person. And one thing that you guys didn't talk about that I really see when you're when you're there live, there are times where we were so like active in the front court of that of that kind of pressure that we do when they inbound the ball after a made basket that there were times that they didn't even get to start their offense until about 13 or 14 seconds left on the gate on the shot clock. And at that point we're they're playing right into our hands that, like I said, before we preview this game, I mentioned that Louisville is not a smart basketball team. They make terrorless decisions with the basketball on offense. And they did a lot of that on Wednesday night. It was a lot of, you know, we basically just said, Hey guys, come on and get this turnover or come on and make this bad decision. And, and they just walked right into it. Uh, so it was really interesting to see even, you know, I think after the game, Scott Padgett was basically like, we knew what they were going to do and we still did it anyway. And it was something to that effect where they basically just walked right into our defense at times and said, here guys, we're going to make this stupid decision. Uh, you guys go out and transition. And the one thing that I'll also mention about that game, the, the actual game, Dunk City. We we I think we we had about 14 dunks on our 14 on our 29 field goals. Um it really made for a lively atmosphere. That would I mean it seemed like every single time it, it, it during the second half it seemed like every single possession we were getting a dunk whether it be on transition, you know, everyone was dunking too. Jack White had a dunk. Alex O'Connell I think had a dunk. Uh Gary Trent, Duval, Allen, you know, uh, uh Carter all had dunks. Bolden had one with like 30 seconds left. 
that it it almost broke the rim. It was it was that vicious. And even in that 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 end of the game, he was still going hard, going to the glass. That shows what we can do when we are smart with the basketball and make good decisions and and have our spacing where we find I mean we have guys that can dunk the ball. And I, I thought that was what made it really fun. It made it for a very lively atmosphere. Uh, so it was great to be back in Cameron, but I will also say there was the, this was the first time that I got to see the Cameron wall um, that they unveiled this year. And if you have not been to Cameron this year to check out the Cameron wall, please do so because it is actually really, really cool, very interactive. Uh, and you get to, you know, basically see how big everyone's shoes are, how big their hand sizes are. There's a lot of different pictures and a lot of different uh, interactive things, including you can look at the box score for every single one of Coach K's wins. So I thought that was a really cool experience and uh, uh, can't wait to get back. All right, gentlemen, so we're going to move on now to the game against Syracuse. And like Donald Donald was saying, the Louisville game was a dunk fest. The Syracuse game was also a dunk fest. The Blue Devils defeat the Syracuse Orange 60-44. to The game marks the return of Marvin Bagley III to a Duke uh, uniform after missing four games in a row. And he comes back and he scores 19 points, leads the team um, in scoring while hitting eight of nine field goals. Uh, Wendell Carter Jr. put up another double-double, 16 points and 10 rebounds. Um, and like I said, you know, this was a game where um, Duke couldn't shoot outside at all, but we dominated so much on the inside, so many points in the paint. PFR Duke, who is a, a moderator on the DBR boards and a, a fabulous, fabulous poster, pointed out that Duke made only four shots outside of the paint. 18 of our 22 total shots were made in the paint, and most of those were slam dunks. Donald, let me go to you first. Anything more to add other than the fact that Duke dominated the middle against Syracuse? Yeah, it led to suffocating defense. Uh, you know, we allowed two Q's players to score in double figures. We had 13 steals, limited them to 44 points and 31.5% shooting. That That's awesome. That's what you yeah. want to see. Like, Four, you can't. 44, 44 <laughs> points is their low for the season. They, they didn't, yeah. that's, I mean, yeah. that's, the, those are some Virginia numbers. If we talk about good defenses it, to be compared with, you know, how Virginia is playing on defense this year, that was what we saw on Saturday. Uh, you know, I, I like I liked in that game, that even though we weren't, like you said, we weren't shooting well from beyond, you know, from outside, but on defense, we gave them a lot of pressure and almost every single time down the floor, it seemed we limited them to one shot. So if you're, I mean, I, I, I like that sometimes we, we allow the defense to kind of bend, don't break, allow them to take some stupid shots. And what's great about that is, you know, you can say, okay, take that stupid shot. That was your, that was your chance and you blew it. We're going to take this rebound and, and move in transition that's what you want to see with this defense. That's that's what we didn't see tonight against Virginia Tech at times. But against Syracuse, even with the the frustration that we had on offense with shooting, we were able to use our defense and turn that into offense. That's the Duke of old. That's what we want to see. I was surprised at how poorly Syracuse responded to zone defense. You would think that even a not-so-great Syracuse team, and we, we said in the preview that that their offense isn't very good. They basically only have three guys that score the ball. Um, you would think that they would be able to at least move the ball around appropriately against a zone, um, a zone with players that at Duke have not, you know, we're not doing this the whole season. This is like, this was kind of an additional wrinkle that, be, but is not sort of the way that coach K normally, um, normally coaches. So I, I was impressed 
that Duke was able to to bottle up the Syracuse offense that efficiently, and even though they're they're not so good. And then on the defensive end, um, for for Syracuse at least, uh, the offensive end for Duke, um, that they were able to hold their own against a Syracuse defense that is really good, and that Duke appears to have digested the the counter to zone better than their counterparts um, up in, in Syracuse. So uh, not, not a ton to say about this one. I don't think, uh, I don't think it went so differently than the way we had previewed it um, coming in. All right, gentlemen. So the Duke regular season will be done in uh, just a few days as we will be playing the hated North Carolina Tar Heels, um, it will be the game for second place in the ACC. There's, there's absolutely no question about that, regardless of what Carolina does in their game against Miami tomorrow. Um, uh, no matter what happens, I, I'm fairly sure that this game will determine who finishes second in the ACC. Um, and uh, so, uh, Donald, let me go to you first. What, what, what do we need to watch out for? What's the key for the Devils to get revenge on the Tar Heels for what UNC did to us just a couple weeks ago? So I'm going to give you guys the take that you you probably already know, and that's rebounding. We have to limit their shots. We have to win the battle of the boards. When we played back on February 8th in Chapel Hill, we didn't do that in the second half. We allowed 15 offensive rebounds in the second half and 20 in the whole game. We just can't do that. We can't give them second and third chances to score points. That's how they get a lot of their points is on those second and third and fourth and fifth opportunities. Our defense has been much improved the last few weeks, so if we can continue to be great on defense, get rebounds, and limit their offensive possessions to one shot, that's what's going to help us win this game. Sam? I want to see how Marvin Bagley progresses. We talked about it uh, in particular about the game tonight against Virginia Tech. Um, I want to see how he does on on both ends of the court. They have the whole week to practice. They've got a, a nice chunk of time off, so they, they should have time to have Bagley get reintegrated. Um, I don't know which end of the court it is that I that I expect the most improvement from him. I think I said earlier that it was defense because I think that the the concept should be easier and that the offense is going to be maybe more complicated because I think there are more moving parts. But I, I want to see Marvin Bagley improve. I want to see him have a big game against Carolina because as as we were saying in the early discussion, Duke is probably not better with Marvin Bagley right now, but they could be really quickly depending on on how well he you know gets back into form with the rest of his teammates. So I'm going to be really interested in seeing what happens on the defensive end for Duke and how much we're able to slow down Carolina and keep Carolina from scoring. It it seems bizarre to say this, but since that Carolina game, Duke is a completely different team. I mean, completely different. And it's partially that we're now against Carolina. We mostly played man to man and we have now become a team not just mostly, but almost exclusively plays zone. But I want I, I, I want you guys to think about Carolina scored 82 points against us in that win. 82. This Duke team just doesn't appear that they're going to give up anything close to that with the way they're playing defense now. Since that Carolina game, we gave up 69 to Georgia Tech. And then we really committed to this zone. We gave up 52 to Virginia Tech, 57 to Clemson, 56 to Louisville, 44 to Syracuse. And then, oh my gosh, we gave up 64 to to Virginia Tech today. So this is a Duke team that's barely given up, like mostly in the 50s. And, And Virginia Tech squeaked their way to 64. 
And Carolina, if you look at Carolina's scores, and Carolina's on a nice win streak. They've won six, uh, six in a row, it is. They're, they're getting into the mid to upper 80s on in almost all those games. They're sometimes getting into the 90s. So to me, yes, the rebounding is huge. It's key. And that was the key to the last time around. And it'll be key again. But I'm really interested in seeing if the pace is played at Duke's speed or if it's played at Carolina's speed. And if the scoring is played at Carolina's pace or the new pace that Duke likes you know, as Duke has sort of become Virginia-like, we slow it down a lot more. We're trying to slow our opponents down a lot more. And we're playing games in the 60s and 70s, not in the 80s and 90s. And I think that's going to be an interesting key to the game. If if this is a game played in the 80s, that's what Carolina wants. And I'm not sure that's what Duke wants. And it's what we wanted at one point in the season. It's not what we want now. All right, so we're now going to turn to the uh, FBI scandal, the scandal involving Arizona and some other teams and this the story that has dominated the college basketball landscape. But before we get to it, uh, our sponsors, Bird Campbell, uh, Tucker Bird of Bird Campbell, wrote us a note. They are, of course, lawyers. Uh, they are Duke grads. And, uh, and, and every so often they'll tell, they'll have something they want to chime in. Uh, and I just want to read to you guys something that Tucker Bird wrote that I think is, is really telling. He said his 37 years of extensive trial work in courtrooms has taught him a lot of lessons that are being played out in this pay-for-play scandal. First and foremost, he says, in this electronic and social media age, there is no such thing as a backroom deal. There's no such thing as a secret. You have to assume that what you say or write will come back to bite you, as it has with the head coach of the Arizona Wildcats. <laughs> and he says, secondly, it is usually the cover-up that's worse than the crime. Woe be unto those who publicly deny their involvement if later exposed. It makes them look that much worse. And finally, he adds, here's the ironic part, and I love this. Tucker Bird tells us, the shortcuts that are being taken by these schools to snag the very best recruits come for, to get those recruits for only one season. Their time at the school is very limited. He said, talk about a bad return on your investment. Is the time that the player spends at the school really worth the crime that has been committed. So that's the word that comes to us from, uh, from Tucker Bird of Bird Campbell, our sponsors, who we thank every week for, for joining us. And it leads us into our conversation about the latest on the FBI scandal um, and the major event that has happened since we last spoke to you, which is ESPN reporting that uh, Sean Miller, the uh, head coach of the Arizona Wildcats, has been caught on tape on a wiretap talking about giving $100,000 to DeAndre Ayton, um, the stud stud recruit who uh, who's Arizona's best player and might, might be the number one pick in the draft. Um, and uh, apparently, uh, Sean Miller was caught on tape saying this. Sean Miller has been, uh, you know, he, he says he's stepped aside. It's Maybe he's been suspended. Who knows what? But he is not currently coaching the Arizona Wildcats team. DeAndre Ayton is still playing. Um, and he claims through his lawyer that he, he doesn't know anything about this. He was never offered the money. He never took the money. Um, there's no proof, uh, at least that we've heard from the FBI, that that anything uh, that Aiton should be ineligible for taking any money. But but Sean Miller, whew, uh, it looks really bad for him. And and guys, I want to start our conversation. Um, and Sam, I'll start it with you. Uh, we got a, a wonderful question from from one of our listeners, uh, Zalman Goldstein wrote to us and said, explain to me why a player meeting with an agent and receiving money from an agent 
is a reflection on the school that ended up signing that player. And Sam, uh, let me let me put that one to you. I think it's a really interesting question. Are these schools to blame if these players did something wrong and took money? And I'm th- talking about Dennis Smith at NC State, uh, and, and there are a number of other ones. There are a couple of guys at USC that we've heard about, potentially DeAndre Ayton. Um, is it is it a reflection on the school when the player does something bad? So I think there's a little bit of nuance to this question. Um, but the the main issue is that when a school or schools recruit a particular player, um, they're generally the representatives of the NCAA as it pertains to that player while that player is still in high school. Like they won't encounter the NCAA formally until they go through the clearinghouse to make sure that they're eligible at the end of high school. Um, so it's kind of on the schools that recruit him, but ultimately the school that enrolls that player to make sure that everything is kind of on the up and up as far as NCAA rules go. Um, and in particular, if we are sort of clinging to the the current uh, set of rules and, and amateurism, um, everybody knows that the the shoe companies and the agents and the AAU coaches and the NBA scouts, they're, they're all over the place, right? They, they are on top of these kids. They know who the top players are um, because everybody, because there's a whole media industry around covering these players and, and casual fans knew who Deandre Ayton was a couple years ago. People knew who Marvin Bagley was. So it, it's a little bit on the schools to be enforcing that stuff because there are so many bad influences. Um, now in the, um, in, and so I, I would say that kind of like in the fantasy world of the NCAA, where the schools are like the bastions of amateurism and everybody else is a filthy capitalist, it's the school's job to, to police that um, sort of as the players are in high school and to inform them about what the rules are. Now, the question is, is that fair? And I think that that gets to a little bit of the discussion that, that we like to have here and that I think a lot of folks in the college basketball media and fans in general are having now um, – is, is is it fair that the schools have this responsibility? And um, I, I don't think that's necessarily, uh, I, I don't think it is fair per se to the schools. Um, they're not around the players all the time. And it, it's just, it's too hard to keep up with every little conversation, especially once we're talking about parents and, you know, the, the parents and guardians and whoever who have influence on the kids can have lots of varying motivations in addition to whatever the kids want. Um, we know that this, that this came up with um, with a former Duke player many years ago with with Corey Maggette, um had issues potentially with his eligibility related to um, payments when when he was in high school. Um, so I think there's some assumption that a kid who like gets mixed up with agents is somehow not going to abide by the rules. Um, but uh, like I, I I don't think it's necessarily right sort of in the in the in the future state for um, in, in the future state that, that we, I think, want um, for the schools to be responsible for this. Now, the other, the other question that we can ponder, and I'll, I'll bring this back to you guys, um, is like in that future state, in wherever we're going with basketball, are all these influences, are the agents and the shoe companies, are we going to keep discussing them as if they were like, as if they were bad? Because there's, there's that assumption right now, like I, like I said earlier, um, I don't want to think that like, obviously these, these entities are all just trying to make money. Um, but they're, they're, they're very open about what they're doing. It's not like we don't know that the shoe companies are sponsoring AAU events and we don't, it's not like we don't know that the agents are all trying to sign players so that they can get payments 
you know, get like take their percentages when those guys go pro. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, that's like the, the, the great hypocrisy I think of this whole thing is that we, we get so wrapped up in, in amateurism that we sort of forget that like everyone's just trying to make money and there is a lot of money to be made uh, for, Sam, think, for all of these people. That, that is, that is such a great point. The, the notion, I think you're right. Everyone just goes, Oh, agents, shoe companies, bad guys. They're not bad guys. In fact, what they're, they're doing just people. Is, well, well it, it's that they're, uh, you know, they're stuck by this amateurism model that I think we all agree is broken. It, it, it doesn't work anymore because, and we've said this, God, how many times have we said this? I feel like I've said it a dozen times on the podcast. These guys are worth something. And the NCAA is saying, no, you're worth nothing. And if you say that something is worth, that is worth something is worth nothing, someone else is going to try and make it worth something. I know that's a lot of worths in there and it may not make sense, but all the agents and the, the, the shoe companies and the such are doing is filling in for something that the NCA is trying to unnaturally suppress. And it's just, it's wrong. It, the system that, would work if we just would let reality happen. I, I've mentioned, I, I think I've mentioned this before on the show, but this has kind of long been my ideal sort of situation for college basketball because I, I love college basketball and I love um, that it is tied to the schools. I like that, that it is players representing particular universities. I think that's really cool. And it's something that nobody else in the world really has the way that you keep, I think the way that you keep most of what makes college basketball great while also allowing the players to, to do that is like to, to make money on their, on their likenesses and whatever is to have the schools facilitate the agencies. So a player can come to, can come to Duke and Duke has a staff or, or, you know, maybe only one or two guys who are the, the agents for Duke players and they can go out and find sponsorship deals for these kids, let them be in commercials, let their faces be in NCAA basketball games, stuff like that. Um, Cause then you get the, the kids can still, can still go to class and still be students, um, which I think is something that we, that we all like, even though we, you know, acknowledge that, that the student experience is not exactly the same for, for the high level athletes that it is for everybody else. I think that's fine. Um, you know, to, to a certain extent, but getting them that experience of being represented and, 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 and juggling all those different things is important for a Duke basketball player because more likely than not, he is going to be a professional basketball player in a couple of years, if not in one year. And if it's not in the NBA, it's going to be overseas. It's going to be in the D league. Um, but all those guys are going to, they're going to have shoe deals, whether or not they're big or small, they're going to have, you know, if they're, if they're lower level players, maybe they'll like get in car commercials for whatever, you know, city they live in. Um, but getting that experience, I think is important for them because that's how they're going to make a, a decent part of their living going forward. And what is, you know, what what are the colleges doing um, if they're not preparing students to be to be adults? I know that they're supposed to be encouraging them to be like good thinkers and everything, but but you know we need to be realistic about it. They, these kids need to have that real world experience, and I think that the schools can do that if the NCAA would just let them. And that's why, I, like I said, I don't think that all these people are bad people. I think that they're all just gonna gonna create a system where sort of everybody's going to win one day. I want to come back to the current scandal. Donald, um, I apologize. Sam and I got off on tangents there and the such, but I want to come back to the the, the story that's really dominated for the past couple of days, which is the Sean Miller, Arizona story. Donald, uh, talk to me about Sean Miller. What, what would you do 
if you were the University of Arizona with with your star young coach who has been implicated in the worst, worst way possible in this scandal? Well, Sean Miller is probably grateful that I am not the University of Arizona because if, first of all, if I were the University of Arizona. Donald's about to bring it. Donald's about to bring it. I wouldn't have hired him in the first place. I do not like Sean Miller. I think he's a weasel. I think he's a snake. I think he has been for a while. And color me crazy, but when I was in the car driving and heard his name come on that report, I shrieked because I was like, thank you. I told y'all, I've been telling people for years that this dude was involved in some stuff and now they got him. And honestly, like all that aside, he's done. He's done with college basketball. Like, I don't know if he coaches again this year, but after this year, this he's not coming back from this. Also, I do think he's the type of dude, and this is, again, this is kind of the, the, the reason why I think he's weasel. I think he's going down swinging. I think if he if he gets implicated in this further and he has to, you know, face some charges or, or some NCAA inquiries, he's going to take a whole bunch of people down with him. And if they got him on taps, then the question is, you know, who's he been talking to? Who, who that person has been talking to and how is this all linking together? But when you tie it into the whole, this is, this is kind of the root getting back to the overarching probe and just the way it's been reported. Sean Miller is accused of trying to figure out how to get a kid a hundred thousand dollars. Yet even today, this afternoon, ESPN Fox, all the, you know, dead spin, all these, uh, sports, uh, sports cast, sports news, all of this stuff is leading with Duke, UNC, Kentucky as being the main programs implicated in this. The main program implicated in this is Arizona, Louisville, probably Arizona State, you know, Auburn, those type of schools. But for some reason, even though Wendell Carter's now played two games, he, you know, they even came out after the game on Saturday and explained exactly what. He knew what Wendell Carter knew, what Wendell Carter's mother knew, and how he they got on the phone with the NCAA, and the NCAA said, there's no reason to pull him off the court. He's okay. Michigan State has come out in, about Miles Bridges and said that he was ineligible at one point, but after meeting with the NCAA, the NCAA reinstated him, and so he was able to play this past weekend. But we're not talking – we're talking about these guys, and – what's really, really shoddy reporting is that they're implicating the wrong guys. And I won't say implicating, but they're, they're talking about the wrong guys. And meanwhile, this Sean Miller business has not really been talked about that much relative to the Dukes, the UNC's, the Kentucky's, the Kansas's, those type, the Michigan States there, those are dominating the headlines, but Sean Miller here is done with college basketball. That's a, that is a, Absolute fact. If he coaches another game in college basketball after this year, then it's probably going to be with a show cause hearing attached to it. This guy, I did not know you had such strong feelings about Sean Miller. Yeah, I have to ask: Is there? I mean, is this just a a gut feeling you had, or or was there? there Is there some beef here? There's got to be something here. Yo, there is nothing. You you said it. It was a gut feeling, and it's honest. It's funny. Me and my best friend, we talk about him. We've talked about this dude for years. And for years, we have said that, yo, there is something about him that just screams that he will do anything and everything. And and honestly, even just his trajectory of going from uh, Xavier to to Arizona and then all of a sudden all these recruits 
start going to Arizona. Not the best recruits, not the top level recruits, but you know, the top 15, top 20. And we're like, there's no way they're going to Arizona to, to play for this guy. Well, and, 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 and I, I love that. Wait, my wait, gut feeling last, was right. Hold on. The last, like, the last like five or six years, Arizona has, has been like right, right behind Duke and Kentucky for like the most number of five stars signed. Exactly. And, and it's not, but again, when you talk about the the top, like no, when I say I, top, I, I think like that top I, five. Think hang on, hang on. Arizona is a top tier program. Arizona has for the past, oh, for the past twenty years, has been arguably the top program on the West Coast. It's not crazy. They've always under Lou Olson, they always recruited really well. Right, but but at the end of Lou Olson's career, I, listen, I I don't know that I I fully buy into the the Donald theory, but let me entertain it. <laughs> but the Donald theory is right. Lou Olson, Lou Olson. <laughs> Lute Olson had his like end of career kind of swoon. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I could, I could see, I mean, there were, there was a period, you know, like, so I'm, I'm 28. Right. Um, I remember Duke beating Arizona and like Gilbert arenas in the 2001 NCAA championship. And then there were a few years where it kind of, I wasn't really sure what happened to Arizona. If you were like my age going to college uh, or maybe a few years younger than me, I could definitely see, um, you being like, eh, Arizona, like if I wanted to play on the West coast, why wouldn't I play at UCLA where Kevin Love and, and Russell Westbrook are going, um, or to Oregon who had, who had a few good years there or, or even like, or Gonzaga, little, mm-hmm. or, or that's why I was going to say Gonzaga who, you know, is, is in a lower conference, but every year is, is like a top four or five. Even seed. Arizona state had a moment where they had James Harden there where they were, you know, basically out recruiting Arizona. I'm not saying I buy into the to the Donald theory on what you're thinking Miller about it though. The worst, but <laughs> I'm 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 intrigued. I I would you know what Donald? I would subscribe to your newsletter. Exactly. I was about to say my my. It's not at the athletic. It's not. It might cost you a little <laughs> right. bit though. Okay. So so guys, there are a couple of things I just want to add on this FBI thing. Uh, back on a slightly more serious note, there are a lot of people out there who who have said. Uh, you know, they're like, how is this a crime? Doesn't the FBI have other things to worry about? I need to address those people for a moment and tell them how ridiculous they are. So first of all, how is this a crime? Uh, th- these allegations, the- these discussions of paying players and the such was taking place across state lines. It involved institutions that get federal money, lots and lots of federal money. It is clearly an area that federal law enforcement should address and should look into in terms of, and, and the FBI says the reason they think it's a crime is because these federally funded institutions um, were being defrauded and, and, had, and, and having revenues put in jeopardy because of the efforts of some of these folks to, that would end up making basketball players ineligible. So, so that's I think, how I think we might need, we might need more lawyers in here to, uh, to, to yeah. really break that down. Yeah. But, but I, 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 I get the gist of it. Yeah. And, and, the one that really cracks me up is people who go, doesn't ha- the FBI have other things to worry about? The FBI employs 35,000 people nationwide, almost all of them involved in investigating crimes. It has 56 field offices across the country and makes 25,000 arrests a year. That's the FBI. The fact that there's some agents who've been working on college basketball, to me, isn't an affront to justice. It doesn't mean that other crimes are not being pursued. So that's silly. Now, I want to get to one more thing, and this is the most significant thing. Earlier today, ESPN corrected. They corrected. There was a mistake, an error in their story about Sean Miller. 
they had originally said that the phone call that was wiretapped, the phone call that was heard between Sean Miller and the agent, where they discussed the $1,000, ESPN said that phone call happened in 2017. ESPN has corrected things. They now say that phone call happened sometime in 2016, perhaps sometime in the summer of 2016. Now, who is cares? That, is, that, is, is this because the... Is this because they want to make sure that it still jives with recruiting DeAndre Ayton? Right. DeAndre Ayton committed to Arizona in September of 2016. No, that's not why it matters, in my opinion. You want to know why it matters? It matters because this means that as early as the middle of 2016, the FBI was wiretapping these conversations. I think that the FBI has not just a couple months not just six months, not just a year. I think the FBI may have like a year and a half of wiretapped conversations between agents and coaches all over if the that, country. If that leak is if that leak is true about about ESPN getting that tape from 2016, right? And caveat that really it, that it may not be true, but but, but I but I I got, I got to tell you, I mean that's the kind of that's the kind of specific detail that is pretty rarely not. I mean, it would take someone who is doing part of the, you know, part of the investigation, take someone in the FBI or someone like that intentionally deceiving ESPN, which to me doesn't make sense. Could it, be it, fun. That could be fun. Yeah. It, it's a bad place to go. You don't, if you're an agency, you don't want to be treating the media like that to intentionally deceive them. Um, so uh, while I don't know for sure that it's true, I think it's probably true. And the fact that it started sometime in 2016 perhaps early mid 2016 that tells me there could be a heck of a lot of people that get burned by this so as we said on the podcast the other day when we were talking about this we went oh look this may just be the tip of the iceberg everyone who thinks like oh wendell carter's mom having lunch a lunch that she now says she didn't even eat that she sat down and was polite and listened to the guy and then left and we think oh duke's in the clear folks any school that thinks they're in the clear Think again. There's still a lot, lot more that could come out. A year plus of wiretaps is just terrifying and scary if if you're any school that did anything wrong. But I will say this, Jason, and this is just like kind of, you know, going back to the report that came out on Friday and the report that came out the Friday before that we discussed, where they basically said this would this would change the the the, the scope of co- the landscape of college basketball forever. This would you know, be to the point where, you know, certain teams were not going to be in the NCAA tournament that, you know, Tennessee Chattanooga, you know, jokingly could be a two seed. That didn't happen last Friday. And I, I, I get that there is, there's still a lot to come. There's a lot to unpack. And honestly, the NCAA, how, how long did it take for them to, you know, not do anything to UNC? Years. So, you know, this is just the beginning of the journey. This is not going to be a fast sprint. This is going to be something that a lot of things are going to come out over the next you know weeks, months, but it's not going to affect this year. And really the, the, the reporting aspect of it, I think, has been very sensationalist in the sense that they expected, you know, they basically made people expect Armageddon and we didn't even get deep impact. Well, although we got Armageddon at, at Arizona. And maybe they're just the first of many. I'm just saying, look, I don't know. None of us know. But I'm just saying uh, it's about as bad for Arizona as it possibly could be. So so maybe you're right. It's not going to be soon. It's going to take time. 
And and once we even find out what the FBI knows, it's going to be a while until the NCAA is able to actually react to that um, because the NCAA moves at, at a pace that would make a snail look like Dale Earnhardt. Um, so uh, I, I agree with what you said, but again, I just want to caution folks, there just could be so much more to come on this. All right, guys. So, uh, so we got another interesting um, viewer, listener. I guess we're not viewers. They're listeners, right? We got another interesting listener question that I wanted to put to you all. Um, and Donald, I'm going to put to you. It came from a gentleman named William Parks. And he had a really familiar complaint question that he put to us. I know we've all heard and thought about this before. He asked us if we could comment on the conversations and arguments that we get into with our friends about Duke, whether we ignore them or how we argue against things where people go that Coach K cheats, he just doesn't get caught. All the programs are crooked, even Duke. Coach uh, uh, Dick Vitale only talks about Duke all the time. Coach K, you know, is awful. Donald, I'm going to put it to you. You live in Washington, D.C. You're, you know, somewhat at the heart of a lot of ACC conflict. Tell me how you respond to people who, who make these, you know, attacks on Duke all the time. How do you maintain friendship with someone who's attacking your school? Well, let me take this first from the stranger perspective, and then I'll add the friend aspect because there are two different approaches to that. Uh, William out there, uh, thanks for the question. As, as Jason said, I have a lot of experience with this. In D.C., you know, the major school in this area is Maryland. On top of that, you have friends from UVA, Virginia Tech, Georgetown, UNC, and just about every other major school, and all of them hate us for whatever reason. And I get constant abuse every single time I wear something that says Duke on it. And I mean every single time, like clockwork. And there are people out there, my friends from who went to Miami, went to Michigan, Texas, they always have something to say about my school. They all have their dumb reasons about why they hate Duke. And I even get people who will accost me on the street, strangers, all because they think they have the right to say what they think about Duke to me. You know what I do? I let them. I let them talk trash about Coach K or J.J. Reddick or Grayson Allen or whoever their hated person is. And many times when it's a stranger, I just calmly sit there and let them talk. And when they're finished, I offer up something like this. Congratulations. You're the one billionth person to tell me what they think about my school. You know what you get? Nothing. And then I walk away. But when I turn back, I turn back to tell them. And as a reminder, I did not ask where you went to school because I don't want to walk away with a negative opinion about your alma mater based on how you just represented them. That shuts them up indefinitely. Now, when as friends, you can be a little bit more boastful. Look. I, I, I talk trash of my Miami friends all the time. I tell them to get back to me when they reach a Final Four, when they talk about my basketball team. When they question my loyalty to Miami, I ask if they root for their law school over their undergrad. 100% of the time, the answer is no, and then they get it. So in the end, I will always defend Duke, but the way to do it is to do it with class. Do it knowing you're always representing the school that we all love, and by doing so, you will change their perceptions on our fan base. That goes so much further than acting like a punk because they're only going to remember the negative. Be positive, be knowledgeable, and leave them understanding that when it comes to hating Duke, the only wrong person in the end is them. Be grateful we are at a school that people are always thinking about. It means we are doing something right. Think I got that, gentlemen? Damn. Whoa, <laughs> that was good. I loved it. 
Sam, you got um, anything to add to that? I I thought I did. Um, I would say that I I I also have the Donald experience of of sporting Duke apparel a lot and getting a lot of like strangers comments about it. And yeah, I, I think I totally agree with you that just kind of brushing it off is important, but also doing so knowing that the, and, and, and I have this in particular, I, in, in DC, there's lots of Duke people like where I live, you know, much farther West of there. Um, there are not as many of us. And uh, so I, I am conscious of the fact that I may represent all of Duke fans to certain people that I meet. So I, I am aware that like, I don't want to be a huge jerk about it um, because, because that will rub off their like whole impression of, of, of like the alumni base and the fan base and everybody. But, uh, but yeah, Donald, Donald put it really well. <laughs> that was, that was awesome. I, I will say that in Atlanta, I also, I run into a lot of fellow Duke fans and, and I just don't find that often that I, that I run into someone and have this kind of horrible confrontation with them. It just, it, it's not something that, that affects me all that much or happens never all that often. I, I guess I'm yeah. lucky. I don't, I don't know. So, but Jason, that, you know what? I will say this, and, and this is honestly, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. The one fan base that has every single right to come at us every time I wear a Duke shirt, but rarely does are UNC fans because they understand the respect that each school has for the other. We are rivals. We want to beat each other in everything from, from basketball to badminton to chess. But in the end, we grew up in a society. We went to school in a society where we interact with each other on a daily basis. You know, if you, if anyone has been to Durham, they know that Durham does not have all Duke people, you know, Carolina fans live there too. And you have to interact with each other. And I think that carries over into life. Obviously, when we, you know, we have events, we're trying to out, we're trying to best them. We're trying to beat them. But in the end, there's a mutual respect on some level. And even, and I've even had UNC friends stand up for me when being accosted by someone else because of the shirt that I'm wearing. And I think no other rivalry can you say that happens. Well, the, the thing that I'll say to close this out is, and I say this all the time, I would rather be hated than have them not care about me. And hey, uh, Cat because, Williams said that. Yeah. If, they, if you they, have 20 haters, your object is to get to 40 by summertime. That means yeah, you're doing something right. They, they hate us because they're jealous. They hate us because we do it the right way and we win, 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 win all the time. Um, or and, so, or we, we hope we do it the right way and we'll find out in the next you know, <laughs> one to 20 months. Perhaps. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that back up. Just like, hey, Jason was the one that issued the, the original warning that, like, nobody is safe. Okay, guys, time for uh, us to wrap things up. We've been on for a while. We've had a lot to talk about. Before we go, we do our traditional player of the week. Sam, I will go to you first. Who's your player of the week for the Blue Devils this week? I'm going with Marquise Bolden, who's had an awesome stretch of games. He has played really well on defense. He does just enough on offense. He's rebounding. He's he's uh, he's playing, I think, better than he has yet in his career, and uh, and and continued doing so in the three games this week. That's an excellent, excellent pick. I'm glad you chose him, Donald. What about you? Uh, you know, I was gonna go with Wendell Carter, but I think Sam took my notes because in the end, my pick was also. Marquise Bolden for a lot of what 
Sam just said. Uh, I, I think he – and the thing about it is not what he does in the stat sheet is how he's been playing. And, and like Sam said, he's been playing really, really well over the last week. And a lot of stretches, you know, we couldn't have got through those stretches without him. So uh, he's my player of the week. Well, so uh, I, I looked at Bolden, um, and I wish I could make it unanimous, but I'm going with Wendell Carter despite having a poor game offensively um, against Virginia Tech. He only got five shots and only got five points against Virginia Tech. Wendell Carter uh, was just today named ACC Rookie of the Week for the previous week. Um, in the previous two games, he led Duke in points, rebounds, assists, block shots. Um, he also collected a bunch of steals, and he was 11 for 11 at the free throw line until missing one today. He hit 12 free throws in a row until he missed his second free throw today. But uh, and, and free throws is something that, uh, you know, we've chronicled some some struggles for for Mr. Carter. Uh, so I took uh, Wendell Carter Jr. as my player of the week. And guys, it's time for our parting shots. Uh, Donald, I will hit you up first. What do you got for me in the, the parting shot category? Start over. Go with Sam first. <laughs> He's clearly not reading the notes. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm debating whether or not I'm going to leave this in or whether I'll edit it out. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm, 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 going first I'm leaving it in. Donald's I'm leaving it in. <laughs> I'm leaving yeah. it in. Sam, what's your parting shot? I have two parting shots. One of them is news that I, I just came across. It uh, came out a few hours ago that Bonzi Colson, Notre Dame's uh, do-it-all player who has been out for all of ACC season, is going to be coming back Wednesday against Pitt. So that's a great tune-up game for him to scrimmage against. Uh, it sounds like he's going to be playing limited minutes, but uh, expect to see Bonzi Colson back for the ACC tournament, which makes Notre Dame um, a lot stronger at both ends of the court. And uh, we we know how good Bonzi can be. So I'm looking forward to seeing him again. He's a really fun player. And, and, and uh, by the way, and after deserves, that, and he deserves that, that time. After that Pitt game, their next game, do you know who they play next? No, I don't. They play Virginia, and to some, extent, to some extent, that could be. Now it's at Virginia. That could be a play-in game for for Notre Dame. It could change the entire calculus of who gets in from the ACC because if with Bonzi they go to Virginia and beat Virginia, I think their argument that we are a completely different team with Bonzi Colson than we were without him becomes really, really strong. Uh, now, yeah, a, I think I, I mean tough. The, tough the only thing climb, we but, really know, the only thing we really know, I think about the sort of top of the bracket right now is that Virginia is like clearly the best team uh, resume wise. So if they lose at home, anyone that's beating Virginia at Virginia deserves to be getting into the tournament. And that includes of course, Virginia tech who now has a whole bunch of good wins against good teams. Um, The other, the other quick thing that we didn't mention, and I, I I wrote down two parting shots because I thought we might talk about this during the Virginia tech recap is that um, it is, uh, I do think it's weird that, student sections across the country are allowed to so like openly and brazenly curse uh, or like use curse words and chants on television that like are on ESPN games. And this used to be like limited to only a few fan bases, Maryland, but um, it seems like everybody does it now. So in the game tonight against Virginia tech, yeah, um, buzz, buzz Williams, as usual, mm-hmm. as usual, the Virginia tech fans, just like every other fan base in the ACC was razzing Grayson Allen all night. And uh, I don't know if um, if Buzz Williams is is much of a Puritan or if he had 
if he was being more devious about this because he let it go on for so long until the end of the game when he grabbed the microphone before Grayson Allen was going up to the free throw line and well, they were doing the BS the fans to point. point out. Yeah. But they had but but they there were some F words and there, yeah, there was absolutely. a lot of there was a lot of bad stuff. There was a lot of seven words being said. And um he took like twenty seconds or thirty seconds out of the the timeout. Basically it's not an official timeout, but the, the time before Allen stepped up to the line to chide the students and get them to stop. And I actually I, I would like to think that it was a sort of a devious move on his part to like interrupt the flow and ice Grayson and it worked because Grayson missed the first free throw and they said on the broadcast that he hadn't missed like in 24 shots or something like that prior to that. So um shout out to Buzz Williams for uh for creatively um uh instilling a little bit more um decorum in the game and also uh being a little bit of a gamesman for him. I like it, and uh, I while while I think it's amusing to think of it as him trying to ice Grayson. What I saw was a coach taking responsibility, um, and and I admire that, and I, I wish more coaches would do it. And I hope the Virginia Tech fans feel a little bit shamed about that kind of thing. Look, I know Duke sometimes plays blue, so to speak, um, in our in Cameron, uh, but uh, uh, you know I think we do it less and less. And Co- I know Coach K doesn't like it, and I think the the mark of a truly creative fan base is one that doesn't need to resort to uh, foul language. So you mean like, you mean like when I was at Duke and wore my blue graduation, high school graduation robes to the Maryland game. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that. Okay, sure. <laughs> do you, well, do you remember, do you remember that back in like the mid to late two thousands, like when I was, oh, in cause college, they didn't graduate anyone. Maryland, no, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Maryland didn't yes. graduate anyone for a few years. Yep. Now I <laughs> so get the I, I'm there. I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, I, I wore my graduation robe to at least one Maryland game when I was in school. Very nice. So Donald, yeah. have you prepared your parting shot yet? Yeah, well, the reason why I had to find the actual – this is about crazy score lines. So I had to make sure I got the score lines right, and I was looking it up when you said, Donald, you're on. So I have the scores now. All right, so over the weekend, there were two games that really probably, if you saw the score, uh, you probably were like, that is a football score because they were. Um, the first one was UVA playing at Pitt. Now, UVA was up 30-7. to seven at the end of the first half. Yes, Pitt scored seven points in one half. They only scored one field goal, and I believe that was a three, and they missed 23 shots. They were one for 23, and they allowed seven points in the first half. UVA somehow just just going beyond their, their normal mind-boggling stats on defense, only allowing seven points. Yesterday, Houston, the University of Houston was hosting East Carolina. And at one point in the second half, deep in the second half, it was 71 to 17. Now, if if that were in Cameron, the palindrome chant would probably be coming out. But to have a stat where it's 71 to 17, I'm thinking it was like 10 minutes left in the game. That's astounding. So I just wanted to give a shout out to two ridiculous stat lines, two ridiculous scores. And really, ultimately, two terrific defensive performances. So for my parting shot, gentlemen, I want to tell a little bit of a story. Um, I, I, I'm betting that some of you out there have have heard this story. But if you hadn't, you're, uh, you're going to really enjoy it. The University of Iowa has a uh, basketball player named Jordan Bohannon, 
who is a really good free throw shooter. Um, and coming into the Hawkeyes game on Sunday against uh, Northwestern, Jordan Bohannon had hit 34 straight free throws. Not an easy thing to do. And those 34 straight free throws meant that he had tied a guy named Chris Street for the Iowa record. Now, Chris Street was a, a really good Iowa player back in the early 80s, uh, sorry, early 90s. Um, and days after Chris Street hit his 34th consecutive free throw, he tragically died in a car accident. This was 1993. So who knows how many Chris Street would have eventually hit consecutively, but his record stood at 34 because he perished and died. And so Jordan Bohannon stepped to the line for Iowa's game against Northwestern on Sunday with a chance to break the 25-year-old record of, of Chris Street. And Jordan Bohannon put up his free throw, and the arc was really, really high, and the free throw came up really, really short. Um, it hit the front rim. It didn't even really have much of a chance of going in. Hit the front rim and, and bounced off. And immediately, Jordan Bohannon took his fingers and pointed to the sky, pointed to heaven. And he later said that he had decided he did not want to break Chris Street's record. He intentionally left his free throw short. He said he didn't want to make it too obvious, but he did not want to break that record because he said Chris Street was such an Iowa legend, such a great guy, and he died so tragically. And Jordan Bohannon thought, I'll share it with him, but I'm not going to take it away from him. That's that's a beautiful story. I'm sorry. That's that's really nice. I want to kind of know what Jordan Bohannon would have done if he'd been fouled and they had been only up like, you know, by one point in the final minute or something like that. Uh, I think he would have had to break the record, I guess, in that case. But as it was, there were like four or five minutes left in the game. They were up about seven. I, I guess he knew it was safe enough that he could miss the free throw. But uh, I, I just wanted to give a shout out to a really great guy. Iowa's Jordan Bohannon um, for, for even bothering to know the story of the guy whose record he had tied and for then deciding not to break it. That was a really cool story. I saw that uh, when you sent it to us the other day. Uh, true class. Awesome. So that's going to do it for us here on the DBR podcast, episode number 109. Um, the Blue Devils will be playing the North Carolina hated Tar Heels this weekend, and we will come at you soon after that game. We will have all the ACC standings, the, the entire ACC tournament lineup, and our preview of the ACC tournament coming at you. But until then, you have to just wait and see what happens. So for Sam Klein in Denver, for Donald Wine in Washington, D.C., I am Jason Evans in Atlanta, Georgia. And Duke Band, it is your turn. Take us home. <laughs>